welcome to another episode of the Lucid Health Podcast. My name is Luke Tullock. You can get in touch with me at Luke Lucid Health on Instagram, or you can email me, Luke at lucidhealthcoaching.com. While you're here, if you could please subscribe and or rate and or share the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. You know, all the usual spiel, blah, blah, blah. All right, let's get into it. What I want to talk about today are some resources that I find useful, the stuff that I use to upskill myself, to keep myself uh, in the loop with what's going on in the fitness industry. Um, and hopefully you'll find that pretty useful as well. First up, I want to talk a bit about what I like to call the hierarchy of scientific evidence. Um, this means that at the base of the pyramid at the bottom is the stuff that is of weakest evidence and at the top near the point we have the strongest evidence. It's all evidence, but there is definitely some stuff that is weighted more than others. So near the bottom we have things like case reports, opinion papers, letters, um, what the buff guy at the gym told you. Uh, all that type of stuff. So any sort of opinion, things you hear around the traps, anecdote, that's all at the bottom. As we get uh, stronger evidence, we start to look at things like animal trials in vitro studies, which means uh, not in an actual biological uh, system. Um, Cross-sectional studies, case control studies, cohort studies. This is all getting stronger and stronger evidence until we reach uh, what most studies are, which is a randomized controlled trial. Um, now, this is the setup where we are controlling variables. We have a control group or a placebo group, and the, uh, the researchers themselves are blinded as to which group is receiving what treatment. So this is our gold standard, you know, sort of standard study that we get. Now, we can combine the evidence. If you listen to my statistical um, podcast, which was the last episode, you know that the longer the duration of the study, the more the, the number of subjects we have in the study, etc., the greater statistical power we have. So meta-analyses and systematic reviews can basically combine data and results from a bunch of different studies and give us a much stronger idea of what's going on uh, in the real world. So meta-analyses and systematic reviews are at the top of the pyramid. Um, and of course, I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to, all of that stuff is still subject to personal bias. You cannot get rid of bias because it's always going to be inherent in everything we do. And not only that, when we're interpreting all of these studies and all of these opinions and editorials and blah, 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 we are still interpreting that through our own subjective means, meaning there is still going to be some form of bias there. So you can have a study uh, review where someone's reviewed a study and a research review who really knows what they're doing, but their inherent biases are still going to filter through in that. So no matter what we do, bias is still going to be there. Obviously, when we're looking to make decisions about uh, a certain topic, we're looking for the balance of evidence, the overall, um, as I said, balance of evidence, I suppose. So all of that evidence is taken into account. We're not disregarding some completely. Uh, you know, opinions and case reports and stuff like that are not particularly strong evidence, but we still need to take them into account. Okay. Now, with research papers, something that I often get asked is, where do you get the research papers? Like, where do you actually find them? Um, I did a little podcast with the STC Fit Guys where I went through this a little bit, but I'll go through it again. Essentially, the best place to find a study is to go to a position stand or a meta-analysis or a systematic review and to look at the references there. What is a position stand? A good example is the IWSN. 
the International Society of Sports Nutrition. They have a position stand on things like um, which diets to use for fat loss, uh, creatine, caffeine use. And what they will do is they'll have their expert reviewers go through the body of evidence and come up with a position stand for the whole organization. They'll have a ton of references in there that you can go and look up those papers. Similarly, if you are looking at a meta-analysis or a systematic review, you're going to get a really good idea of the overall body of evidence. It'll give you a lot of different papers that you can go and look at in the references. There may be as many as 80 references or more, um, and that gives you obviously plenty to look at. Once you've got uh, another study to look at, you can then go and look through those references, which may give you 20, 30, 40, 80, or 100 more references that you can go and look up so that you're never going to run out, to be perfectly honest. It's going to be ridiculous how much stuff there is to look at. So that's where I find a lot of the research papers. That's where I would start. There's other interesting stuff that gets thrown around. So a lot of the people I'm going to mention later, like experts, you can follow on social media, whether that's Twitter, which is not super popular in Australia, but a lot of uh, research scientists are on Twitter. Um, or you can look at uh, Instagram, you can look at Facebook and follow those personalities. They often will post studies. There are also Facebook groups that have their sole purpose is to post studies. And I can't remember what they're called, so I'm just going to pause now and look them up. Okay, so a couple of them are uh, methods in sports and exercise science and research in nutrition and exercise science. You can also go to the International Society of Sports Nutrition research-based training and nutrition. So those are all uh, you know, sites that you can go on, or groups on Facebook that you can go on and look at some papers. There are some other pages on Facebook that I think are really good for looking at research papers as well. Strength and Conditioning Research by Chris Beardsley is phenomenal. And again, I wouldn't necessarily just take the author's conclusion on this. I would look up the papers yourself. Um, subversity is also really good. I don't often agree with the conclusions drawn from that, but I think the guy who runs it, Adele Musa, is pretty smart. He's read a shitload of research. It's basically his job. So you can definitely pull a lot of papers off of that to go and look at yourself. All right, that's one thing, but how do you actually read papers? I'm not going to go into it too much here. I do do a lot of this in my own courses. Um, so you can have a look at that. Um, send me a message or something if you're interested. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's some other options as well. I think looking at research reviews is a good way to get in the heads of someone who is good at reading research and has practiced it a lot. So you can see the approach they take. So Alan Aragon's research review, uh, Strength and Conditioning Research by Chris Beardley, Beardsley, like I mentioned. Um, the MASS, M-A-S-S, is really good. Greg Knuckles, Eric Helms, Mike Zordos. And there are a bunch of others. Uh, James Krieger's got one as well. So those are all really good to just get inside the heads of how people are approaching reading studies. But you have to bear in mind that it is a skill that requires a lot of practice. It really does. And just like you wouldn't expect to get really good at bench pressing if you only did it once every couple of weeks, you do need to practice uh, reading papers, analyzing them, picking them apart. And the more papers you go through, um, it, gets, it gets easier and easier to know what to look for and to see similarities or dissimilarities across papers. So I definitely say that you need to practice it if that's something you actually want to get good at. The third component of that is that it does require a basic understanding of what you're reading. So if you, for example, had uh, no background whatsoever in music and you tried to pick up sheet music and play an instrument for the first time, you'd have no idea what the hell was going on. You wouldn't know what all of the 
the markings meant. And so if you're trying to decipher what certain words mean or certain processes that are taken for granted by people who have done science degrees, then I'm sorry, that's just basic knowledge that you're missing and you're never going to understand it no matter how good you get at quote unquote reading the paper. So uh, I blow this horn a lot, but you need to brush up on your basic understanding of science if you want to be decent at reading papers and being able to analyze that stuff. Right, as far as obtaining the actual papers themselves, uh, usually they are behind a paywall and you have to be subscribed to a journal or you have to purchase the papers uh, individually, which is pretty expensive. It's like 15 bucks US or something for a paper quite often, which is a bit extortionate, I think. So there's a couple of ways you can actually get the full version of those papers. The first way is to um, email the authors themselves because they will have the rights to the pre-publication version. And they are usually pretty happy to provide you with that because you're showing an interest in something that not many people on the planet are interested in and it's their life's work. So if you email the authors and you are polite, you should be able to get a pre-publication version of the paper. The second way to do it is to go to Sci-Hub, S-C-I-H-U-B. There's a dash in the middle and there's a truck typically as I'm trying to record this, brilliant. Um, but if you go to Sci-Hub, uh, there's a, a moving um, URL where it's usually located because it gets taken down sometimes but that will provide you with the full paper all you need to do is paste in the URL of the paper from um, wherever you found it all right next I want to talk about some of the experts that I like and I would like to run through just a few of them uh, instead of keeping it too lengthy but uh, give my opinion on what I think each of them uh, provide value for and what they're good for so I'll start with Greg Knuckles. Uh, I really like a lot of Greg's writing. I think he is quite to the point. He answers questions that readers come up with before they need to ask them. And what I like most about Greg is that he's very interested in statistics and the meta science of, of science. In other words, uh, the actual study of how we conduct science and how we communicate science. So I really enjoy that about Greg. And I really like the fact that he is basically pretty inoffensive. He's a pretty nice guy. He seems to be pretty rational and not too tied to particular ideas. So that's something that I really appreciate about him. Appreciate about him. Um, I do think for the average person, some of the stuff he's writing can be a little bit difficult to get their heads around, especially some of the, you know, statistical analysis type aspects. And although he does a good job of breaking that sort of stuff down, um, I think probably for a lot of people, what he's doing in the industry is not necessarily what they're looking for or can easily sort of wrap their heads around, but definitely one of the better sources out there. Uh, next up, I want to talk about Alan Aragon. Now, if you've been following any of the fitness industry kind of news, um, a few months ago, Alan had a bit of a controversy where he was involved in some sexual harassment type stuff. Uh, so I'm not going to comment too much on that. I'd rather just stick to uh, Alan's information and what he's, what he's done that's positive for the industry. He's got one of the longest running research reviews out there, the Alan Aragon Research Review, and I found it to be really good most of the time. I think a lot of the time, some of the topics and so on are a little bit uh, not really my cup of tea or not particularly interesting, but he certainly has done a really good job since 2008, and that's something that I've been reading since about 2010. So I really like that. Uh, I think the stuff that I appreciate about Alan is that he has covered a broad uh, range of things over the years. And many of the myths that I originally was sort of having some cognitive dissonance with, like, you know, um, I, I came from the school of where Charles Poliquin and Gary Taubes and all of them were telling 
uh, trainers and still were uh, until Charles passed away recently that uh, carbohydrates and insulin are the main cause of fat loss, of uh, fat gain, sorry. And, um, you know, there were other people out there who were refuting that and I was really confused and, and one of the people that uh, first opened my eyes into trying to look into the studies and the research on this was Alan Aragon. So I have to credit him a lot for that. Now, I do find that a lot of the stuff he communicates in public and at conferences is just really rehashed. And for me, it's very boring because it's been done to death. Now, I completely acknowledge that that is definitely not the case with the average person out there on the street and certainly not the average fitness professional. And there are still people out there who need to know how much protein to have, whether fasted cardio really burns more fat, whether nutrient timing matters around a workout, whether carbs are going to make you fat whether fish really thins the skin, like tilapia really thins the skin, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I find it really uh, boring and monotonous to have that rehashed constantly. And so I feel that the way Alan has gone is that there's not necessarily that much new, relevant, exciting information coming out of his corner. Uh, but that's really just a, a small gripe because overall I think his contribution to the industry has been massive. Which brings me to <laughs> probably the most controversial figure, uh, Lyle McDonald. Now, Lyle is uh, incredibly smart, but also incredibly abrasive. So he's been around just about longer than anybody, has written some of the best possible texts out there on fat loss in particular. Um, protein book, you know, he, he started a lot of the, the ketogenic diets way back in the day. He sort of wrote the book on uh, that type of thing. And of course, his Facebook group, bodyrecomposition.com, is, um, or the, the Facebook group for bodyrecomposition.com, which is his website, is really, really good. Now, Lyle, unfortunately, has some really strong opinions, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. I tend to find Lyle's way of dealing with people, for the most part, extremely abrasive, and I can't stand it. It's like a child, and I think a lot of people out there listening to this probably understand what I'm talking about. He's made a lot of enemies out of people in the industry where he didn't have to. He's recently had some issues with Brad Schoenfeld, um, and James Krieger in one of their recent training studies. And he, the way he went about that was not great. And so he's sort of uh, made enemies. I, I don't know if they're enemies, but he's certainly not made friends there and um, alienated people like Eric Helms, Brad Schoenfeld, James Krieger, who are, you know, big figures in the industry and probably important to maintain those relationships. I do feel that the, uh, the way that a lot of the other fitness professionals uh, in my list that are coming up interact with each other is really for the benefit of the industry as a whole because they do communicate with each other a lot and use each other to sharpen their ideas you know in some cases that can create a bit of an echo chamber but I definitely feel that overall there's a net positive effect so it's nice to have Lyle being the dissenter in many cases that is actually something I do like about him he's not afraid to dissent or have a different opinion but I do feel that he gets a little bit hung up on some of the things that he says so to give you an example I feel that he tends to misrepresent some of the data or not represent misrepresent data, but he doesn't give as much weight to evidence suggesting that volume is the primary driver of muscle hypertrophy. Instead, going for his sort of pet idea that intensity or weight on the bar is the primary driver. I don't think he denies that volume is a primary driver, but he seems to ignore a lot of data that actually uses very low intensities and still sees hypertrophy. So for example, a lot of the metabolic stress training, he sort of tends to ignore uh, when we're having this discussion. And so I find 
that a little bit illogical and he just seems to be a little bit of an ideologue on that case. But overall, I really like a lot of the stuff that Lyle does because he is a little bit contrarian. So say what you will about him, he's a bit of a jerk, but I think uh, his overall contribution to how I think about things and about how many people in the industry have evaluated the common knowledge out there, uh, I think is really, really important. And so I don't want to you know, completely throw him under the bus. Okay, on to Eric Helms. I really, really respect Eric uh, for a number of reasons. Firstly, he is an actual researcher that has worked really hard on his career and has uh, acquired a lot of knowledge along the way and performed a lot of research. Uh, Eric's book, uh, or his books, The Nutrition uh, Pyramid and then The Muscle and Strength Pyramid, are really easy reads that address a lot of questions. I think some of Eric's greatest contributions have been around the applicability of a lot of concepts to stage competitors. So things like diet breaks, training frequency, length of the diet and that type of thing. And that comes from a lot of experience in the field with his company 3DMJ. Uh, with Eric, I especially admire the fact that he's pretty calm and cool and collected and very respectful in the way that he deals with people online. And he has made several posts in the past about how it's much better to win people over uh, and try and disseminate your ideas that way instead of going after them and acting like a dick online. And Greg, is, Greg Knuckles has done that as well, which I really respect about him. I really like that. Eric's always very respectful. And some of the other cool stuff he does is he posts some things that make you think. Like uh, one of the things I'm thinking of in particular is on his Instagram page, he posts uh, some of the old time strongmen and bodybuilders that were around before the prevalence of steroids and performance enhancing drugs. And it just indicates the ability for people to achieve great levels of strength and muscularity and athleticism without modern training techniques, without modern training equipment, um, you know, without modern diets, without modern drugs. So I think that's really cool. And it does make you think for sure. So Eric's contribution definitely to the fitness industry is is phenomenal and I really enjoy the fact that his information is very straightforward and easy to understand for the layperson. So if you're a trainer who is particularly looking to uh, progress as a even a powerlifting coach but also as a physique coach, I'd highly recommend looking into Eric's work because it's, it's quite direct and straightforward. It's based on science but also tempered with Eric's long history of coaching people which is fantastic. I'll talk next about Renaissance periodization, or in particular, Mike Isretel. Uh, Mike is very, very entertaining to listen to, and what I like most about him is that he's very interactive on social media and on podcasts. He does heaps and heaps and heaps of podcasts. He's written quite a few articles, and he's very active on social media. So there's always little gems to be picked up from Mike. I think, personally, that a lot of Mike's ideas are pretty valuable to the state of bodybuilding training as it stands at the moment. But I also feel that Mike tends to explain things from a very subjective point of view, which I suppose we all have that subjective bias like I've spoken about already in this podcast. But I tend to find a lot of his uh, anecdotes and his analogies don't really align with my own personal experiences, like how he describes how sore he gets sometimes, or you know when it feels like this, you know when it feels like that. And I'm like, no, I don't actually know how it feels like that. I don't experience it like that. So I think he maybe bases a lot of uh, what he puts out there on that type of thinking, which, uh, you know, you could take or leave, but it's just something that I find a bit idiosyncratic about him that I don't really like. 
but a uh, very entertaining guy to listen to. And like I said, he's done so many podcasts that it's really, really helpful to listen to what he's saying. The concept of MRV and you know maximum recoverable volume is certainly not a new one. And although he's credited with um, giving the nomenclature, which as well he should, uh, you know, that concept of like work within your recovery capacity is, has always been around and people have always sort of understood it, but I think formalizing it and discussing it the way he has, it's been a massive step forward for, uh, bodybuilding training because now everybody's talking about it and everyone is thinking about how much work can I actually do? And this has all been backed by the literature where we see that training volume is a really important driver for muscle growth or adaptations in general. So, uh, you know, very topical, a lot of the stuff that he's talking about, which I really appreciate. Um, I like the fact that he is so driven as well as a bodybuilder and as an academic, really enjoys working, seems to have some broad interests, seems to enjoy life and have fun as well. And so uh, I can really appreciate Mike's uh, stuff on that side of things. But like I said before, just some of his sort of the way he explained things and some of the experiences that he seems to have just don't really seem to align with my own or other people that I know. So I just wonder sometimes if maybe uh, that sort of personal bias uh, has maybe taken him off track sometimes. But I mean, we're all susceptible to that. So, you know, whatever. All right. And then the next person I want to talk about is Menno Henselmans. So Menno is great because of, again, he's a bit contrarian. So he's very much of the mind of providing data and support for the things that he hears in the industry, which I absolutely love. If you can't tell by now, it's really something that I'm into because I think there's so much stuff out there where we just naturally take it as as for granted. And whether they're supporting data for that or not, um, usually there isn't. So I really like that Menno takes that stance of breaking down what we actually do, what do we actually know? And and obviously taking that Bayesian approach to thinking. Now it's very logical. Now the problem is I think sometimes Menno will take one study or one piece of evidence and run with it a little bit too far in some cases. So I don't necessarily agree with some of the things that he said before um, about various things, but it's, it's sort of nitpicking and it's kind of like, well, I don't have any evidence necessarily to the contrary for that. But it is a case of sometimes I feel he's uh, simply taken a single study or a single piece of evidence or maybe just little bits and pieces of evidence and sort of run with them a little bit too far. Um, And again, that may just be a personal bias type thing. It may just be him saying, well, it is Bayesian to do this. It is, you know, the best possible evidence that I have at the moment. So I'm going to run with it. Um, However, I have a little bit of resistance to that because I feel that that can easily get out of hand. I already see people trying to interpret study conclusions completely incorrectly, especially with underpowered studies, like I spoke about in the last episode. So that's a big, um, I suppose, con or downside to what uh, I feel Bayesian bodybuilding and Menno Hensemans is doing. But overall, you know, really intelligent guy. And I really enjoy the fact that he is contrarian and he's and he's happy to take people on uh, with logic. Um, you know, often we don't necessarily need a study for something. You just kind of need to have critical thinking skills. And Menno, for sure, of all the people on the list, I think has the him and Greg maybe have the most powerful critical thinking skills out there. Um, and so, it, it, you know, it's obviously something that can disseminate a lot of information and break down things without necessarily having to have a study or any other evidence for it, which is great. All right, guys, I'm going to start to wrap it up pretty soon, but I just wanted to touch on some other podcasts that I find really, really good. My absolute favorite one is easily Sigma Nutrition. Uh, Danny Lennon does an absolutely incredible job talking to researchers and other experts in various uh, fields in that one. So 
100% check that out. Another one that isn't running uh, very frequently anymore is the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast, but along the similar lines as Danny, I find the guy who hosted it, Laurent, was a little bit long-winded uh, <laughs> and monotonous, maybe a little bit like me, you might be thinking, but uh, he honestly the quality of people that he's had on there is just ridiculous so i'd go through the backlog of that i think it's really really good the other one that i like quite a lot is stem talk that's pitched at someone who already has a pretty solid basis in science and they don't always have biology based stuff on there but i find that very good as well and then you know there's a bunch of other ones the jug life podcast is always entertaining and very informative all the uh, guys that do the renaissance stuff on the revive stronger podcast is always interesting and there are some round tables on that you know there's a there's a lot of really good podcasts i think i listen to i subscribe to at least 50 um which is you know quite a lot uh but those are my absolute favorites and i'm not going to harp on about it too much because i think you can easily get out of hand with that so like i said not an exhaustive list of every possible resource out there certainly many more people doing absolutely fantastic things in the industry some less well known i think some probably some of the best coaches that you'll ever meet are the people who basically don't have much of a reputation outside of their close circle uh, so certainly not an exhaustive list and certainly there are many many more fantastic resources out there but just probably some of the bigger players in the picture at the moment and I thought it might be interesting for some people who may not have heard of them. There'll be some more information for you to check out there. So I'm going to wrap it up there, guys, and I'll catch you in the next one. Thanks very much. Remember to please subscribe. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with me, Luke at lucidhealthcoaching.com is my email. And you can uh, contact me on Instagram as well at Luke Lucid Health. Thanks very much. Catch you next time.